Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're back to phase 2023. Now, I hope you've all slipped into this new year like it's a warm bath, but if so, this episode should serve as a cold shock to the system. My guest is Stephen Markley, author of The Deluge. It's the big book that everyone is now talking about. Stephen King has been promoting it for months, and Markley was on Seth Meyer last week to talk about it on the same bill as Tom Hanks, no less. But (laughs) I got the first interview when Stephen was still working out exactly what he seems to think about his big bombastic decade-in-the-making tale of environmental and societal collapse. And in many ways, I think I'm surer than him. Because, well, quite simply, I think The Deluge is extraordinary. It's not a horror book in any marketing or basic genre sense, but it is beyond terrifying. And boy, do Stephen and I talk about it at length, from the intricate research to how you choose your characters within such a limitless set of possibilities in a book of this scale. We discuss writing Apocalypse differently, and also how the climate crisis forces us into uncomfortable conflict with some pretty fundamental values. Now that's all heavy stuff, and the book is damn heavy, both literally and thematically, But I hope amidst the end time angst that this conversation may actually leave you with a little optimism. Now, a brief segue into crass commercialism. You can support this show by subscribing to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up for bonus content aplenty. It really helps. So, yeah, thanks in advance. But now, come with me to a broken, burning futurescape. Oceans are rising, society is crumbling, but still, a candle of hope flickers on. Let's talk scared. Well, hi, Stephen, and welcome to Talking Scared. Happy New Year. Uh, Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. At the time of recording, we're a week away from the release of your well, frankly, epic new novel, The Deluge. <laughs> How are you feeling going into uh, into release? Uh, de- I, you know, definitely the nerves are starting to to butterfly around. I think um, over a decade working on this book, and so mm-hmm. the fact that it's finally like being read by people uh, is kind of it's a, it's a little alarming. You know, uh, <laughs> it's all the the thinking and anticipation, and then finally it's it's here. And I, you know, should probably try to enjoy it, but. Uh, <laughs> that's that's still kind of notional. Yeah, well, I mean, Stephen King said that it was the best book he read in 2022, which I think is quite yeah. the quite the accolade, you know. Um, Pretty incredible, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, just a little. Yeah, I'll go further. <laughs> I mean, I'm not quite sure my word is worth quite as much, uh, but I'll go further. Uh, I have a truly dreadful poker voice, so I'll just say it straight out: the, the Deluge is the best book I've read this century one of the best books I've read in my entire life. Um, it's best to say that up front, otherwise it just becomes a series of kind of obsequious comments. Yeah, we don't, we don't want to get awkward later, you know. We don't want it to, uh, yeah, let's get out of <laughs> yeah. the way. Uh, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate that. This is like my, you know, my second interview uh, before the book comes out, so I'm still sort of 
wrapping my head around the fact that that strangers are reading it, like I said. So mm-hmm. I really do appreciate that. I'm glad it's only your second interview because there are questions I'm going to ask you which are kind of unavoidable and I think you're going to get asked them a lot. So I'm happy to be asking them early on before you get answer fatigue. No, it's good because by the end of a book tour, you want to be sounding like a robot. Like you want to just have your, <laughs> your answers in a holster. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's nice to like get this opportunity to sort of like, oh yeah, what do I think about my book? That's, yeah, that's it's good. Yeah. Well, this isn't nominally a horror-focused podcast and... I'll be honest, when I invited you on, it was with some trepidation because basically I wanted to read the book, but I was like, who's got the time for a 900 page book when you've got a podcast to go on? <laughs> so I thought, I'll just invite yeah. him on with this kind of vague rationale that, that climate change is a universal overarching source of fear. Uh, but yeah, I basically was shoehorning you. And then it turned out that no book has ever frightened me more. <laughs> So with that due praise given and you hopefully disarmed, I can now ask you all kinds of tricky, problematic questions about the deluge. Uh, I can't wait. Yes. (laughs) Can you start us off, though, by introducing my listeners to this book on your own terms? It's a bit unfair, I know, because it's it's 900 very dense pages long. But can you give it a shot for us? Yeah, let's let's try. Um, The deluge is a is a near future multi-character uh, epic about not just the climate crisis, but sort of the social crisis resulting from, from uh, our environmental degradation, what we're doing to the planet. Uh, it starts in the recognizable past, in our real past, and then jumps ahead to 2025, right? And so sort of picks up from there and takes the reader from 2025 through, you know, the 2040s. Um, and it, it looks at the crisis from a variety of perspectives uh, in American society. That's incredibly neat synopsis, yeah. I, I was thinking, how the hell is he going to do this? But you've nailed it. Well, <laughs> you, just, like, you can't get any of the character machinations, you know. you got to stay away from like all the actual stuff that happens and kind of give the, the umbrella uh, overview. So that's, yeah. I, I realize I should work on it, though. It sounds a little dry when I, you know, and it's like, it's... It's about families. It's about relationships. It's about love. You know, it's about how human beings cope with unthinkable uh, uh, travesty we're unleashing uh, on the planet. So, uh, it's it's a big, epic, thick book, as you said, and it's uh, hopefully something that will allow readers to reorient themselves to what's happening. Yeah, or, or educate them if they didn't know, like me. I mean, I thought I was abreast all this stuff. I've been reading The Guardian furiously since Trump took yeah. office. And I thought I was kind of savvy about the state of the world. And and it turns out I was a, na- a naive little bunny who knew nothing. So, <laughs> Well, I think that's that's what's so difficult about the subject, because it is so complex, you know, and uh, at, at the base of you know, I mean, it, it's straightforward. It's we are polluting the atmosphere, right? But, you know, the results of that and sort of the implications of how we uh, uh, you know, run our in society is, you know, those are so profound. And it takes so much um, sort of mental energy just to approach the topic. Well, all right, let's start there then with the approach seems an obvious place to begin. Um, you, you mentioned the book has been 10 years in the making, uh, in, in the writing. And yeah. I just wonder how you how you start because, w- w- you know, with a book of this magnitude and complexity, you know, it, it surely can't just start by writing and seeing where the story takes you. What what was the inspiration and how did you approach it? Yeah, I mean, I I think I began to get 
like whenever I write something, I, I always sort of like have a shape in my head. Um, I, it's almost like a synesthesia thing. It's like I understood the movements of this like entire epic structure. Like I, I from the very beginning, sort of knew it would be in five parts. I knew what each one of those parts would like, how it would kind of flow. And then it was a matter of sort of finding the characters, like who who is going to be a part of this, right? Uh, and I started out with with more characters than I actually finished with. Um, you know, had to sort of leave leave some stragglers behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I narrowed it down, and what I wanted to do was write uh, the the opening section where here we meet people before they are in the storm of history. You know, this is who they were before all this, and and taking these key moments from their life that sort of explain something about them. Um, and then from there, you know, after I'd written those, that opening section and all the pieces of that opening section, it was kind of like, okay, well, you know, what happens in this future? How do these characters react? And it's a lot of discovery, you know, uh, it's a lot of driving into dead ends, turning the car around and trying again. Um, and over the course of a decade, uh, and especially the last two years working on the edit, um, you know, it was an enormous amount of, of sort of just agonizing about uh, uh, every single human being that I've created in this, you know, <laughs> fictional world. So. But, but you're across so many realms in this with, with such seeming authenticity. I mean, it may, it may be a big illusion because I don't know enough to know how accurate you are, if that makes sense. But you certainly yeah, give a good game. Sure. But you're across politics, you're across kind of environmental science, you're across kind of AI, you're across like the world of finance. And that's before we get into the kind of authentic character-based stuff. Yeah. Is it just a case of sweating the research and doing it? I mean, how do you synthesize all of that information into something and then give it propulsive plot? Well, I, I mean, my problem as a writer, I think every writer has their own Achilles heel. And mine is definitely like overwriting, overthinking, over everything, you know, um, the original draft of this was 1500 pages. Uh, and, and it took me, you know, a year to even cut that down to something that I felt like I could send my editor that wasn't Ted Kaczynski in a cabin by himself, uh, <laughs> length, you know, uh, and, and that intensity. Um, and it's hard to explain because it's just like what I've been doing for so long. So it feels so utterly normal to me. But uh, yeah, just like making sure I had a grasp of every subject I wanted to write about, sort of trying to inhabit characters by reading what they would read, uh, you know, looking at the, the the politics they would look at, like trying to understand them from the inside and, you know, committing to, to take every bit of the book seriously so that like, I, I'm not just plugging in sort of what does the zeitgeist think about AI at the moment, but actually trying to think about what the effects of AI might be on our political processes, things like that. So, yeah, and it is as it goes on, and we get and we spiral out further from our current year, it becomes an absolute masterclass in in true speculative fiction because it is that it's speculating where these you know the butterfly yeah. effect of of things, where this little a decision in Congress one day how that may affect something fifteen years down the line, and how this innovation in in VR tech may occasion this thing yeah and i just imagine you you know you know the that that meme of always sunny where the guy's in front of the the massive pinup <laughs> yeah i just imagine imagine this like dizzying kaleidoscopic set of notes and then you thinking like how the hell do i wrangle this into a story no that's that's pretty accurate i'd say uh i definitely like certainly went crazy for a while 
you know, the hardest part about the book was that I wanted it to be intended for the exact moment of its publication. Like when it comes out, it should be able to communicate the urgency of, of the situation we're in, right? And so the most difficult part was kind of, uh, I, I say, getting the teeth of the zipper to meet so that what is happening in the near future reflects almost exactly what has happened in our recent recognizable past, right? So that's kind of, that was kind of the biggest challenge of the entire novel. It was all the problems of writing a thousand page epic, also coupled with the fact that it had to be to reflect our actual moment. Has the story had to change to, I don't know, sort of keep up with reality almost? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, I turned in the, the, the first like copy edited draft to my editor. The, um, well, what was basically the first draft he, had, he saw in February of 2020, right? So I had spent all of January and February, like not seeing any friends, not going out, not drinking, not doing anything, just sitting in my room, uh, finishing this. And then suddenly I turn it in and it's locked down, global pandemic. Uh, and all the things happening in the news for that year, I was just like, oh my God, this is right out of my fucking book. This is so like eerie and unsettling, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so just like catching up to current events and like trying to make sure they were integrated into the novel was, was of course difficult. <laughs> uh, and I, I will admit that at times, you know, I had some dark, dark nights. Uh, it's, I think it's difficult to have written this and look at what's happening and not have felt a certain amount of despair. Um, and even like, uh, even worse than that despair and, and sort of, like how you know fucking stupid i felt like oh you're gonna write your little book and that's what you've been working on this whole time like real yeah real great real that'll be fun um and and trying to like keep in my in my mind that like you know art art still matters and and you know what we do or even what you what you're doing as as a podcaster like tackling this topic um it's it's like this is this is important. This is what this is what creates a foundation for people to reorient their own their selves themselves emotionally to what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that's completely valid. It's like when people say, like you know, science is science is how we study how life works, and and art is how we work out it's worth being alive in the first place. So I uh, I'm totally on board yeah, with that. Right. Um, <laughs> right but you exactly. are. You, you are bang up to date. I mean, everything up and up to like the Biden's election. I think the only thing you don't have in there is the war in Ukraine. Um, and in fact, actually, at one point, oh. there's a ref- there's a reference to Russia being allowed unchecked access to Ukraine's grain fields to help avert global famine. And that brought a kind of pitch black smile to my face. Yeah, well, like, look, because right as we were doing the final what's called fourth pass, which is like the last time you get to change anything. Like I turned that in and that the, you know, the war was launched, like I think days later or something. Uh, and I remembered that line very specifically. And so I had this frantic conversation with my editor, like, can we get anything else in the book? Is that possible? So actually in the next edition, there will be a different, that, that, that set, those set of sentences will be slightly tinkered with. Uh, also the book will acknowledge the IRA, the, the big American climate bill that passed. Um, and imagine how vexing that was for me because I was like, oh my God, this thing has to pass. But at the same time, it, I was like, oh, but it will fuck up my book. So 
<laughs> in, in the next edition, uh, some of the events like that I was trying to cram in at the last minute um, will appear. So I guess this is just a, you know, a plea that people buy more than one edition of the book, which is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> at some point you're going you're to have to leave it, you know, at some point you're going to have to go, right, that's oh. the book now. I can't, I can't keep adding things in. <laughs> It's the worst moment in any author's life when they're just like, ah, oh, God, it's got to be done. And I, it's, it's a relief, but also you're like, wait, just one more, one more, one more, I, you know, that, that kind of thing. But in terms of things going truly mad, I mean, you catalog the fallen away of political standards. And I think that the point where it's like, weirdly, it takes quite a long time in your book for the political degradation to actually surpass where we've already got to and I think the point I recognized it was there's there's one point where a kind of far-right candidate throws a racial slur at the sitting president during the debate and I thought okay well that hasn't happened yet but probably not that far away you know um then we have the pastor and I'm not going to ask you to spoil anything here at all except to say he's this kind of firebrand religious zealot who He's like, he wants power. And a few years ago, he would have seemed straight out of apocalyptic casting 101. Right. But but now, could you envisage the rise of such a figure in public life? Oh, I, I have been saying for a while now, like, I, you think Donald Trump is the worst thing that can come out of the American political right? I don't think so. Uh, and, you know, everybody here is is has their hair on fire already about him running again. But I, like... Uh, there are worse people coming down the line and that that's because we're not, you know, we're, we're not in this like personality. I mean, personality, we are a personality driven society, et cetera, et cetera. But like the forces that are creating the Donald Trump's and, and et cetera, all these far right politicians, those are, are, that's what we have to deal with. Right. Like mm. it's the foundation that's been created. And this goes back to, to online polarization and the ways in which, uh, our media has basically uh, devolved into a machine that generates antipathy. <laughs> uh, and it's it's a tricky pickle, I'll give you that. Like, getting out of this is going to be quite challenging because the polarization has grown so acute. But I, I do think a character like the pastor came out, he, he was born of the necessity that once Donald Trump won and was had taken office, I was like, oh no, the... Uh, the far-right politician I was envisioning is actually not scary enough anymore. <laughs> and so I scrapped that entire character um, and began working with sort of this, this sideshow that I that was in the book, but, you know, I sort of brought him from the margins onto the center stage. And in doing so, like, I honestly, like, scared myself a little bit. <laughs> you said at the start that you, you had a, a shape in mind on an almost instinctual basis. Did you, did you always know it was going to be this comprehensive bird's eye view of the unfolding crisis yeah i mean you know in my youthful arrogance uh you know i didn't think it would take so long (laughs) to write and publish but yeah i just i you know i think i work with a lot of scenes that are north stars right so tony with his daughter at the end of the book right Mm -hmm. i always had that scene in my head Uh, you know i like as early as I could possibly remember this idea. And so it's kind of, it was kind of a matter of, okay, so what, what leads these two people, this father and daughter to this moment? And that, that was kind of something like, that's always a, a tool or a strategy I work with is having a place I'm trying to get to 
Um, and then getting lost on the way is all the fun. This is a weird comparison, but the bucket reminded me of most in structure, certainly not in topic. But have you ever read Max Brooks's World War Z? Yeah, I did. I did read that back in the like. I, maybe had, a strange, I had a strange resonance with that, with the, the sense of like you know, like a truly global crisis, and it being it being told to us through so many disparate cultural lenses and stuff. But obviously, whereas whereas that is delightfully schlocky, yours is terrifyingly yeah. grounded. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I you know it's 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 so, and I struggle with this question of like, how do you create the sense of a global crisis, right? And mm-hmm. I think when I was first setting off to write the book, I, I wanted to include more of a global perspective and then just came to realize, oh my God, that's like biting off way more than, than any human being can chew. Yeah. And so sort of narrowing, narrowing the lens to the characters within the US and, and sort of our political system and our, um, you know, our responsibility for what's happening. That, that uh-huh. became my, my big... Uh, a shift in the book that was very important because otherwise I probably never would have finished it. Yeah, I get that. I, I did keep hoping you'd kind of throw me a bone and tell me how we were faring in the UK. Oh, there's there's some terrifying stuff at the end there, Neil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you're not going to like it. You're not going to like it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, please tell me my village is okay. I wanted you to literally say, yes, this village in the north of England survived it unscathed. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's the one. Because that's the weird thing. Th- this book has kind of clouded my my reality. Uh, so basically, the full disclosure, I've had this horrible kind of chest cough thing for like the last four days, mm-hmm. and I've not been sleeping. So I've basically read this entire book in like five days. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, reading until like 5 a.m. Because I can't sleep, so I'm coughing so much. So I've read it in this massive like burst. And because I didn't feel very well, and I was a bit like, you know, just a bit down in the mouth. And then it's that sure. weird time between Christmas and New Year when everything feels a little bit unreal anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I was reading this book and I had to, yesterday, I had to say to my wife, I need to go for a walk because I need to go out and see that the sun is still shining and that, you know, we're not about to die today. <laughs> yeah. And, I, and I'm not bullshitting you when I say this. It's like, because the book hews so closely to our reality, and it is things that we're starting to read in the news, yeah. and starting to see resonances in the news of what you're talking about, it was a bit of a weird hyper-real moment where I started to forget that as realistic as this crisis is, it's not, you know, we're not there yet. It, it, it was a really weird disorienting thing, and I mean that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I think, though, if you look at it from my perspective, I have been the like, you know, working on this book as things in the book have been coming true. And I've I've sort of had to write around those elements, which has been occasionally just terrifying because I really do think the two threads that I, you know, had had sort of uh, landed on as, as what our social and political future would be, like started to come to life faster than I could write the book. Um, particularly beginning in 2016, and you know, my my feeling overall about the about the scale of what we're up against is that if you are not scared, you are in denial. Mm. What we are looking at is so totally fucking terrifying. Um, and and I don't say that just sort of flippantly, like everybody run out, set your hair on fire. Uh, I just mean that that when you spend time actually understanding what this crisis is going to result in. In terms of in terms of our human systems, it is scary. 
uh, and we should be scared and, and it's, that's okay. Um, but at the same time, you know, and I hope the book got this across, uh, to you and to others. It's, it's like, we are in a precious handful of years when we still have time to act and we still have time to do something. Um, and I think that is the absolute key to remember in, in, through all of this is that the reason I wrote this is, you know, if it can reorient five, 10, 15, 20 people to what's happening and get them to take some small step forward, some small piece of collective action, uh, then it will all be worth it. Yeah, well, there were many parts of the book that brought me to actual tears. And I was <laughs> I was brought to tears at the end when one character is imagining a conversation with his daughter and he's, and he's imagining her horror yeah. at what his generation you know, allowed to happen, I suppose, or was complicit in, and you know the the madness of what we are enacting and not and not acting against. And he imagines saying to her that some of us tried, some of us fought like hell. Yeah, it made me fill up because I'm by that point I'm really like invested in the characters, but also it's like, my God, I'm doing nothing. You know, I, I'm sitting here like one of these, you know, the, the coffee drinking classes, like reading the Guardian paper, yeah. thinking I'm a good guy. And doing sweet fuck all to help anything, you know. <laughs> it, it, the, if, if anything, the book might be a wake up call in that regard. It's just the, the shame is, I suppose, and this might be a weird thing to say to an author, but you kind of worry that because of the the size of the book and how how onerous it it may seem, the only people who are going to read it are the people who perhaps least need to read it. Does that make sense? Uh, no, it absolutely makes sense. Uh, my my sense of well, I, I, let's separate that into two sort of separate issues. The first is the size and sort of the complexity of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, my feeling is that, and I, I've I've heard that before. But my feeling is that, um, and and when I was we were editing with my editor, this was something we kept in mind. Like because it is so, it asks so much of the reader intellectually. It really has to move like a fucking freight train, right? Mm-hmm. Like it has to grab onto the reader and not let them catch a breath, keep them turning pages, keep them invested in these human beings um, in order to, you know, as, as it even, as it serves as a tour guide, again, of the complexity of our situation, right? And, you know, I, it's not like, to me, books are not movies. It's like, I, you know, I just watched Babylon and I had to, you know, pause it to, to go to the bathroom like four times. <laughs> and but with a book, it's like you're not, you know, you're not, uh, you're not just like seated passively, seated passively, uh, taking something in. You can put the book down, you can let it carry you away and spend four hours reading it. It's it's more like uh, the decision of the reader. And I feel like if a book, for me at least, if an, if an epic huge book is moving like lightning, I don't care how long it is. Right? I remember reading The Stand as a kid. And just, just absolutely being so taken by that thing. I could not fall asleep for, like you said, for days. I didn't have a cough though. You know, I was just like, forget about middle school. I just want to sit here and be in this world. Right. So that's the, that's the first point. The second point I'll make is I think we all like feeling shame is, is not as useful a a tool as uh, self-flagellating liberals believe it to be (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) Uh, And I include myself in that, you know, the thing about the climate crisis that we have to remember, and I hope the book communicates this, is it, it is not something being done by us. It is something being done to us. Mm-hmm. You know, there are a hundred companies that have produced sort of 70% of the emissions since the 1980s, right? 
And it's these industries who have captured the political processes, particularly in the United States, um, and are, are stalling action because we have every technology we need to begin rapidly decarbonizing the global economy. It's all there. We know what policies we have to Im implement. It's all a matter of pushing our political leaders to the tipping point when they have no choice but to act. Well, uh, right, a few things now. So, yeah, so you came back to me with, like, a couple of points. I'm going to come back to you and we'll, we'll try and keep this, <laughs> some logic sure. to this conversation. Um, <laughs> yeah. um, first of all, you mentioned the stand and to throw, like, a, Yes. A brief bone to my avid horror listeners. Oh, I'm a huge horror fan, by the way. We could just talk about horror if you want. That's also cool. It's fine. I really don't want to, I want to talk about this book. But it, it did strike me. Okay. I, I gave a kind of knowing smile to the fact that the stand as a, as a document um, is quite a useful piece of plot machinery in this right. um, in this book. Right. I thought it was interesting that you'd pick that book because it's basically it's, it's how people crack a certain code. And um thought either... He's done it because it's like the biggest book ever. So it would be really easy to use in that way. Or two, he definitely just likes the book because there are so many strands of comparison between The Stand and The Deluge. Um, I thought, yeah, it, it was pretty obvious that you had a bit of fondness for that book. It was so funny because, uh, you know, when, when Stephen King tweeted about Ohio for the first time, my phone was blowing up or whatever. And so <laughs> I, I wrote a letter to my editor and say, hey, could you pass this along to Stephen King's editor? Uh, and he very kindly wrote me back. Um, I just, you know, expressed to him that as, you know, as a kid, he was one of the people who got me, who made me want to become a writer. Um, I was definitely reading all of his novels way too young, you know, like an 11 year old should yeah. not have Gerald's game, uh, in their hand. <laughs> but, uh, but this, it, what didn't occur to me until that I wrote him that letter that I was like, oh, I'm actually working on like something that I think was probably like germinating back when I was staying up till four in the morning, reading the stand as, you know, a 13 year old. So mm. uh, it mm. definitely, the DNA, uh, I, I cannot deny is there. Well, yeah. And what I was going to say as well about the standard and, and this and that DNA is that you have essentially, you may, you may not like this designation, but to my eyes, you've written an apocalyptic novel here. It just so mm. happens that the apocalypse isn't this seismic break like they, know, they normally are. So the stand had Captain Tripp, you know, McCammon's swan song has sure. nuclear bombs flying. Whatever happens in the road happens. Whereas in this, it's mm -hmm. like, do you call it pre-apocalypse? It's, you know, it is the process of apocalyptic crisis that's happening. But it's interesting how the template stays the same, that multi-person perspective, etc. But what's really interesting is you were saying, you know, it's not been it's not something we're doing, it's being done to us, climate change. And we we need these massive changes. And it seems to me that what makes your book stand out so much is that apocalyptic fiction has always been a way of clearing the table. It's always been a way of going like, right, yeah. you know what? The system is too complex to rationalize away. Yeah. So fuck it. Knock the chessboard over and let's start again. I've always used the phrase apocalyptic glee, the glee with which authors yeah. do that because they get a new, a new blank canvas. You've done the much harder task of going, okay, an apocalypse, but we're going to tackle the system and what would actually need to change to avert it. That is a very, very different beast to wrangle. Yeah, Neil, that is such an astute point. Uh, I really thank you for bringing that up because it is, as I was, you know, sort of diving into what exists of current climate fiction, you know, that, 
that instinct is so prevalent and it's so to me uh terrible and anti-human and um you know i i and look I, i'll watch some schlock uh zombie movie as as quickly as the next guy uh like i you know i have an appetite for that stuff but um i i absolutely was carrying that around in my head the entire writing process was that, that this is this book cannot be about how awesome it will be when our society collapses, because it certainly will not be awesome. It certainly will not um, benefit anyone. You know, we're not all going back to holistic medicine, medicinal practices and subsistence farming in that case. You know, uh, it's as I say in the book, it's going to be, or it would be grueling and terrifying and unfamiliar and scary as hell. Uh, and that is something that sort of never gets communicated in the, Mm-hmm. Clear the, you know, clear the chessboard scenario. Because look, and it's not about necessarily apocalypse per se. It's about the violent disintegration of the civilization we've built. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's looking at at what practices economically and politically uh, have arisen and how those massive systems uh, are leading us over the brink, Right. And so to me, the challenge of the book was like, okay, so what do we do? You know, as somebody who doesn't want to see our society crumble, what do we do? And I think when I focused my attention on that part of the book, it was actually the, for me, the most uh, sort of uh, spiritually sustaining element, just because there are so many people working on this with incredible ideas, uh, an enormous heart and compassion. And I think that that's sort of what the characters, though they don't reflect real people, it's what they sort of point to, if that makes sense. Well, very much does. Yeah. And, and we've taken broad picture and we'll get back to that, but let's spend some time then talking about the characters because they're, they're quite the bunch and, and compassion is the word because, <laughs> well, well, you know what, we'll, we'll get to it. But first of all, from a, a craft sort of perspective, the deluge has got like several points of view. Um, and I get that there are certain windows that you need onto politics and, and the like, you know, but amidst those kind of necessary in quotation marks characters, you also follow um, a marketing exec called Jackie. Um, you follow a, a guy called Keeper, who is this, this sort of broken soul on the edges of society. But when you have a book of this scale with presumably an infinite choice of perspectives, how do you find right. your characters? Does, does, you know what I mean? Uh, sorry to ask you a kind of really ephemeral question, but how do you find that that is a, a character who will help you tell your story? Yeah, I mean, there, there's trial and error involved. Like I said, I, I, I started the book mm. with more characters than I finished with. Um and that's an absolute necessity. I, I think for me, some, something that's so gratifying is like once you start to write a character, you get to know them better and better and better. And so, you know, more humanity emerges from them as you write. And then you reach the end of the, the book and go back and start editing. And you're like, oh, now I, I, I have a fuller picture of the, who this human being is. Um, and I can begin to integrate all that humanity I've learned about them into 
the uh, the earlier bits, right? So it's it's like I said, it's a process of exploration and and learning. Like you learn about you know a new friend, like you're just grilling them, and you want to hear every story they have. You want to know everything they've ever been scared of. You want to know what, you, what the worst moments of their life were. All that uh, goes into it. That sort of strange alchemy of building a character. I get that, but how do you how do you choose? Okay, so this is an angle I need on this story. I get how you draw the character once you've identified them. But mm. say, for example, Keeper. How do you decide? that's an angle this story needs because you know there's so many permutations how you could approach a story like this well i on the one hand keeper's first chapter was a piece i had sort of written i think along with the beginning of ohio my first novel um Mm. and i didn't really know where it belonged at all i knew it wasn't part of ohio but it was sort of in that same uh milieu we'll say um and so i just had this sort of like this fragment of a story floating around. And when I went to start the deluge, uh, you know, I was like, this, this guy matters in this book. And I don't know how quite yet, but I, I can sense it. Right. And I think like my instinct that I had that I didn't recognize at the time was this guy, you know, this is a dopey term, but he's an everyman. He is probably, uh, you know, a big preponderance of Americans floating around uh aimless having had bad things happen to him uh having done bad things um and it's like the this person too his life will intersect with the climate crisis like nobody is getting out of this even if you don't believe in it even if you think it's all liberal bullshit this is the umbrella under which we all live now this is this is our reality and so i wanted to put keeper you know in into that blender um Mm. and see how he would react and what would happen to him and you know by the time i wrote the second piece uh i you know i i was kind of like i I was like this is this character's uh awful like he's (laughs) he's you know he's frightening um and yet like that's why i was like oh but that's why he matters right like because he doesn't feel like he fits here there's something compelling about him there's something um alarming about him and i did not know where his story would end up when i by, after writing that second chapter but you know it's so it's such a weird thing and i know i sound like a fucking fruitcake when i say this but sometimes when you're writing a character they just take over uh and they are they are almost doing the work for you and you're 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 just listening to them and transcribing more than you are like concocting and that's definitely the case with keeper his chapters for me are kind of like the repository of the most immediate human horror in the, in the book, you know, because a lot of the horror mm-hmm. is on a, a, a national institutional scale. Keeper's horror is very in your face and, and immediate, both yeah. things he does and things that are done to him and stuff, you know. Um, and I was like, you know, this guy's going to be just vile. And then it it it, it feels like, it feels like he is at the core of one of the themes of the book, which is anyone can be redeemed. Yeah, I mean, his his struggle is, you know, he's, he's someone trying to find his way back to his humanity. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think, like, you're right about the on-the-ground horror thing. Like, he is definitely the character who is bearing, you know, he's, he's broke, he's 
uneducated. Uh, he's had a terrible childhood. And, but he is, these are the characters who are bearing the brunt of, of not just weather events, but, uh, you know, our, uh, the broken political system. Yeah. An economy that doesn't work for, uh, you know, anybody who's, you know, not a millionaire. Um, he is the person who's facing the reality of what's happening sooner than everyone else. Uh, but I do think you're right. There's, there's something about the idea that, that threads through the book that it is never too late. Um, mm. And I think Keeper reflects that, uh, you know, as, as, as he struggles to just do anything right. Well, like I say, compassion is is so crucial to this. And and I, w- one thing you do brilliantly, right, is the the balancing of empathy across different responses to the climate crisis. So, on the one hand, you have this character Kate Morris and her activist group, um, mm-hmm. and on the other, you have a a kind of more militant group called who who begin attacking industry um and they're at complete odds with each other complete odds with each other but but in their respective chapters you had me convinced that they were right during that chapter (laughs) and then and then i'd be in the other chapter and i'd be like oh no though these guys are right and yeah well for a start i actually wondered whether it was some kind of like meta study of how weak-minded people like me can be led by a good narrative (laughs) uh no i hadn't considered that necessarily but i'll i'll definitely use that uh but there's something in that right you know there's there is something in that because like i think i'm somebody who thinks of myself and like a lot of this book is about people who you know they they think they're not being manipulated by algorithm they think they're not being you know by media They, they think that they've got some kind of wisdom that they're impervious and then you know, yes, in yeah. in this in this book, you've got me with complete cognitive dissonance, just based upon the power of perspective and storytelling. So, I think there is something in that. Uh, no, it's, uh, it's look, it's an enormous compliment because that's exactly the intention. Is is you get to Shane's chapters, uh, the militant character, and you know you have to think like she's thinking, right? Like you have to look mm. at the activists and be like these. People are weak. They don't understand what's happening. They are useless, uh, and they're you know they're they're pitiful. They're pathetic, uh, and and like to get the scorn involved um, uh, from their perspective. Uh, and they have to turn around and be like, oh my god, like, you know these militants are ruining our chances for this legislation. They're ruining our chances to shape a better world. And you know you, you have to feel both of those characters in their hearts who they are. Um, and you know for for me it definitely like this book was a process for me of like trying to understand how i think about it uh mm-hmm. right and and so i just think as an author you have to take yourself all the way into the perspective of your characters and and sort of not release yourself from it until you need to move on to the next one do you have a character in the book that comes closest to articulating your own perspective um, not, not a hundred percent. I think it was important for me to make sure that I built in flaws or things I disagreed with or, or I, ideas that I would find silly in real life into everyone. Um, just, just so you're not 
creating one character who's your mouthpiece. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, I obviously think when I started, you know, I, I spent the first half of the book just scaring the shit out of myself uh, <laughs> and trying to figure out how our future would develop, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then for the second half, and especially the last fifth of the book, after I brought all these characters, you know, the U.S. and the global economy and everything else to a state of peak crisis, it was kind of like, okay, so what, 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 what would we do in this situation? Like, what, what are the options on the table? And that's when I began doing, reorienting my research to focus on, you know, the people trying to think about these enormous systems issues, right? Uh, and a lot of that turns up in the character of Ash, not only in that fifth chapter, but throughout where it's like, look, we can, we can all play games of finger pointing, moralizing. Um, we can write all the wonderful poetry, uh, about butterflies, not, you know, uh, migrating correctly. Like we can do all that. Yes. But at the end of the day, this is a waste, (laughs) it's a waste disposal problem, right? And how actually would we tackle that? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and from that point, I got turned on to a lot of different sort of engineers and scientists and, and thinkers who, you know, I think uh, offer the most convincing case that, look, this is all doable. Uh, and in fact, if we had started in 1988, we, it, there never would have been a real issue. And really, the problem has been the denial and delay of industry, which is kind of represented by Jackie's character, which has cast a fog over our culture and allowed our politicians to prevaricate and delay and has led us to the point of, you know, a, again, a really terrifying crisis. I, uh, I'm really glad you mentioned Ash because the two people in the book who speak to me the most are Ash and Tony. Is it Pietrus? Petrus? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so t- Tony is a kind of grizzled, old, kind of popular academic who just pisses everyone off. Um, yeah. And, and we, 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 in a minute, he opens up a broader conversation, which which I want to have with you. Um, but Ash is a great character because he's he's kind of unspecifically neurodivergent, right? He's somewhere on the yeah. autism spectrum, you'd, you'd imagine. Yeah. And what I, what I just love is how you took the character who claims to be most incapable of emotion and then you make him into like the emotional core of the book <laughs> yeah because ash's chapters touch me so much more than everyone else's because you're kind of reading what he can't say yeah exactly Th- those two characters were the closest i think this this book sometimes came to humor when when humor was sorely needed yeah one of the i think for me the unexpected pleasurable surprises of writing was when t- I realized like Tony and Ash are going to be in each other's spheres this entire book. And, and they are such, you know, they're both brilliant. Their personalities are both so prickly in different ways and just watching them like interact and, and their friendship to go from rivals to watching their friendship grow, like all this like random great shit just comes spilling out of their mouths. And again, it's like, it's weird because it's like, once you have two characters, you know, so well interacting like that, it, it starts to, their conversations start to just like flow them without my help. Um, mm-hmm. And, and watching them bounce off each other was, uh, you know, a, a lot of fun to write. Um, but yeah, I think, I think for me, Ash was, you know, it's funny because I think he, every book I've, or both books I've novels I've written have had characters where I, 
I'll hear people like, oh my God, I, I couldn't stand that guy. Or, oh my God, I love that guy. And Ash has definitely been, at least initially, that that character, uh, yeah. you know, who polarizes. But, uh, you know, to me is is kind of, like you said, uh, the odd emotional heart of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then we have Tony as well. And, and this is where we get into kind of murky territory, right? And I'm going to... I'm going to say up front, there's a good chance in the next 10 minutes I will say something hugely annoying or offensive to the listener. Um, but it's something that your your book, I'm going to let you lead on this one because you're clearly more skilled at navigating these waters than me. But through the character of Tony in particular, Ash, to an extent, like you say, you say Ash sees this, it's an engineering problem. You know, your feelings do not matter. It's an engineering problem. Yeah. Tony is somebody who both in the book he is like cancelled by the progressives uh and no doubt he would be cancelled for the same reason if he said the things he says in reality yet he's a he's a true yeah. hero um but all that all that leads us to the this kind of darker implication because you know the the, the threat the climate threat is so overwhelming that it necessitates no, can't speak it necessitates these sort of troubling compromises. And one of the major themes of the book, as I read it, is what we are willing to give up as a society to deal with this situation. And it muddies the waters in terms of traditional allies, um, who's the enemy, you know, and, and even whether certain social justices that we all hold as these sacrosanct things on the progressive left, whether they are simply not important in the face of kind of existential survival, you know, it makes for quite a troubling mm-hmm. read inside our hermetically sealed lefty bubbles over to you. If you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. Um, I, I think for me, it was, it, it was sort of trying to, it, it started from a place of this is a prickly old white guy who, <laughs> who is really annoyed that nobody is taking this incredibly terrifying crisis seriously or are pretending to, or, yeah. you know, he thinks they're pretending to, right? Um, and who gets in front of a microphone and says something ill-advised and, you know, uh, doesn't have a career after that, right? Uh, which I just think is, you know, a fairly, you know, it's, that's the least unrealistic part of the book. I'll <laughs> say that's, that's something that happens with semi-frequency. Um, and, you know, it sort of started out as like, this is just how our media environment operates right now. Uh, wouldn't it be interesting if, uh, but then has other implications. Uh, right. Um, and I, I think the book certainly does challenge, you know, myself and, whoever reads it to think about like, what are, what are our priorities? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and certainly another theme of the book is, is what has, um, what has the internet, what has online activism, what has, uh, you know, social media done to our ability to focus on, you know, the most important issue probably to face human civilization in its history. <laughs> right. I, I, I certainly sometimes, start reading the news and I'm like, what the fuck is everyone talking about? Who cares? Shut up. You know, like that, that sensation I feel like is pretty uh, common today. Um, 
And just like, how can we not be paying attention to this? How can this not be the, the first story almost every day of the week? Yeah. Uh, and that frustration. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm someone who has to admit to myself that, like, the frustration I felt over the last decade about how little attention this has gotten has been, you know, sort of one of my operating things I have to not bring up in conversation because it's, yeah, you know, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll open my mouth and not close it for half an hour. But it, it, I mean, I'm, I'm going to go in here and like I say, I'm, I'm treading carefully because, well, you know why. Oh, so but am I. I, I mean, I don't, I don't want to get canceled on my first interview. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, it's things like, I, I, so I've long had this theory. It's nothing particularly original, really. But I, I worry that all, you know, for want, for want of a better word, identity politics, right? I'm, I, I'm not, I'm not going to yeah. go down that route. People, calm yourself, you know. But what I mean is, by <laughs> the, the, these 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 arguments over these issues, which aren't necessary, and you know, social justice is obviously necessary. But they, when you read a book like this, you, you do think, yeah, but we're all going to be dead in twenty years. It does make you think uncomfortably. We've all got so used to just kind of paying lip service to you that, you know, this has to be addressed, has to be addressed. But yeah. it makes you uncomfortably question what really are the priorities of that. You know what I mean? Well, I think, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. And you said a phrase earlier that I also take very seriously, which is sort of like how we all really do exist in our her- hermetically sealed information bubbles and thought bubbles mm-hmm. and opinion bubbles. And for me, like part of the process of writing this book or the way it, it, one of the ways it certainly changed me was my relationship to what media I'm consuming. Um, and particularly, I became very aware of, of how my thinking on certain subjects was being shaped by essentially like looking at Twitter uh, mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, the podcasts I was listening to and the way in which I was succumbing to only thinking along the lines of how I would, of how others in my particular bubble and sphere were thinking. Right. Uh, and have made like such a concerted effort, especially when I was trying to finish the book to, to not do that anymore, <laughs> basically. And I, I think part of the themes, one of the themes of the book is the way in which uh, what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism uh, has essentially like, you know, delivered us all into this state of our, because our attention has been monetized, our views have been polarized, and we are incapable almost of thinking in the order of what is most important, even to us, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's a way in which it's so obvious that it happens on the political right. Like that is very scary and uh, and super like, you know, you, you see it every day in, in the news and you're just like, oh my God, this is insane. But it's harder when you feel like you're, uh, you've been uh, somebody who's standing up for social justice or, you know, the rights of the marginalized or what, whatever issue you, you, you think you've um, been a part of. And, so, and suddenly uh, you're like, oh, I don't even know if, know if I'm thinking for myself anymore. I am babbling a little bit now, but <laughs> I'm trying to articulate the way in which the book you know, utilizes the the consequences of surveillance capitalism and tries to show like the way in which it's impacted our society and will impact our society much, much in much greater ways as the future continues, if we don't mm-hmm. get a handle on it. 
Was that at any point coherent? I'm I'm sort of worried myself. Okay. It was, yeah. And it, it's, it's when we get into these tricky territories, it, it is difficult. And this is why I, I keep praising your book for confronting it because I, I'll be honest, I feel uncomfortable having a conversation that, that sounds in any way like I am minimizing progressive social justice causes. Partly because I actually don't want to do it, and also partly because <laughs> of these hermetically sealed things we're talking about where it's ultra to to say those things. So we all start to babble a little bit. But your your book is very, very good. The Deluge is very good at making a, a kind of compassionate case, often through the mouthpiece of Tony or Ashia or often Kate Morris, making a compassionate case for how all of these issues can actually be corralled under the climate crisis. But we can't allow we on the left to be schismatic or to be fractured in our pursuit of our own personal priorities i think is the way i would put it yeah no that's that's very well said and you know I, corralling what we call the left into you know focusing on anything is is always been the problem of the left right like this is mm-hmm. this is not yeah. a new uh you know sort of sort of issue but I, th- I think the book lays out the case that you know, the, though the scale of this crisis is so totally terrifying, the path and the route to a better, more just, and equitable world lies directly through it. Lies directly yeah. through fixing it, uh, and that that is some an argument that is is sort of you have to get into the weeds on to articulate it. But it's like, first of all, if we don't solve this, everybody's worse off, right? Like, mm-hmm. especially marginalized people they will they will they are the you know already the first uh victims of this but you know at the same time in order to find a way out of this it's going to lead to uh more justice more equity uh Mm. better health outcomes and and that's it's a difficult argument to articulate when everything seems so urgent uh but this i you know to me is just by my mind it's it's really, like I said, the most urgent thing humanity has faced in its history. I once heard someone say, I can't remember who, faced with our own mortality, faced with the fact that we will die, how do we not spend our entire lives screaming? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of like that. How are we not, how is everyone not up in arms? So, so perhaps quite literally, you know, because of what's happening. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a weird global delusion i will say to that um and you know because that's the way i've certainly felt uh, much of the time writing this book uh is is am i doing is this right to be writing this book should i actually be out in the streets screaming all the time um but you know recently i read uh Thich Nhat Hanh, the 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 monk the buddhist monk passed away last year and his last book is i'm sorry this is the book recommendation part I, we're not there yet but uh, he wrote this book called Zen and the Art of Saving the Planet. And I, it, it really helped me reflect upon like, just because you want to do something doesn't mean you're doing something effective, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the way in which taking the time in your life to calm your mind and to think through what it is you can actually do. And, and by that, I don't mean sort of, you know, environmental talk is always just riddled with this like how to green your netflix binge kind of bullshit uh quote-unquote reporting um but how do we add up 
How do, how do you and I and other people accrue? How do we take collective action to change the, the gears, to change a little cog here, a little cog there? Um, and suddenly those cogs begin to add, add up. Uh, I think that to me was, was something I had to reflect upon a lot was because as somebody who has wanted to do something about this for a while, how do I make the talents I have and the skills I have the most effective advocate for change? Okay. Well, I'm going to end by clawing for the positive note because the existential dread is just too much otherwise. With everything you've read and everything you've written and seen in the time you're writing it, do you have hope left for our kind of political and ecological future? For me, it's like the difference between hope and despair went by the wayside at about, you know, page 600. Um, hmm. I, I believe in doing the work, right? Like, I, I think that there are so many different ways that we are not working right now that we can be working to change this situation. And I'll, I'll, I'll just give some examples. Like, because this bill passed in the U.S., the Inflation Reduction Act, Suddenly, every city, every state, every small town, every college campus, every high school, every middle school has a chance to electrify their energy systems and begin to crush demand for fossil fuels. I mean, that's the idea, right? That's the idea behind the bill. And so suddenly it empowers people everywhere to come together and begin to, like I said, change out those small cogs in in this system. And obviously, like, it's not going to feel like much to electrify the bus fleet uh, of your local high school. But when a thousand schools electrify their bus fleets, uh, you know, 2,000, 3,000, that begins to add up. And it's an enormous boulder we have to push up the hill right now. But I really think that the fight to basically save uh, our civilization and our planet uh, from entering a state that, you know, humanity has never dealt with before. It also is the way we renew our democracy. Uh, it's, it's the way we produce better outcomes for poor and marginalized people. It's the way we tackle enormous inequality, both within you know, the American uh, uh, polity and in the, in the world, really. Um, I think the opportunity we have is, is what we have to pay attention to. The opportunity for... An, a more just and equitable and prosperous world. Like often environmentalism, we think about what must be taken away, what we have to lose in order to, to mm-hmm. avert crisis. But I think what we should focus on is, is the opportunity, how much more bountiful and, and compassionate uh, our, our society and our planet can be. And so that's, that's what I like to focus on. And you put together a great kind of raft of measures that, I mean, again, this is me relying on your expertise. I don't know. But the various bills and initiatives that you you posit to solve the, the problem um, or to at least kind of ameliorate the problem, like the shock collar, for example, which is this idea of, yeah. of a carbon tax that is reinvested into basically, you know, everyday Joe and Jane's hands to kind of foster an investment in, in, in decarbonizing the environment. Are those things that you've made up for the book or are they, are they things that are out there in the political sphere being talked about? 
Oh no, that every one of those measures that I put in the book not only are is real, but like I, I made sure to run them by climate policy experts. Actually, one of the best compliments I got, uh, I, I had, uh, I basically cajoled uh, somebody who works at an energy think tank to read the whole novel. Uh, and we were talking and he was like, so what's your background in climate science and clean energy? And I was like, I don't have one. And he, he just goes like, oh, I can't believe that. I would have thought you were working on this like mm. at the international level for a decade. And I was like, no, that's, that's not the case. Uh, just some, just some guy. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it is all real. And that's, that is part of what is so frustrating is, is that we know exactly what we need to do. Like all these ideas have been out there for, for 30 years. Right. Um, and I think that the shot caller is just my, uh, sort of name for what would be the most aggressive policy you could put in place under, you know, what? current circumstances, you know, I, I didn't want to get too utopian about it, but mm -hmm. uh, in our current sort of political um, climate, right? Um, but yeah, I think I think one of the most difficult things was deciding what to do if, I don't want to spoil too much, but at the end of the book, there's basically an economic crisis dealing with sea level rise. And then it, we, I was really into speculative territory uh, because nobody has really thought about much about that yet. Um, and if suddenly uh, no property on our coast is insurable, what yeah. the fuck would we do? <laughs> so uh, that was that was really a challenge of trying to put together like what would be a real response. And I talked to so many economists, uh, you know, scientists, climate modelers, people who work on ocean science, just to try to wrap my head around, you know, what would be a response that would be plausible. Mm. Well, I just hope that the response that your characters come to doesn't take quite as much violence and, and disruption. Um, I hope we get there before then, because Christ it is a rocky road. I mean, I was I, I was reading the book and there's a there's a middle section um, called the Nation of Heat that yeah. just I, I wanted it to be over because I was just it was just getting so horrifying like the, the layering of, of misery on misery. And then the next chap, the next section, it was called Long Road Home. And I was like, oh, I was praying that that would mean there was kind of an upswing in, in the in the outcomes. And, and I, I won't say what happens, but yeah, that, that middle section is is grueling and, and more than qualifies you, I think, for a horror podcast. So let, let's hope <laughs> yeah. that changes are made before the shit hits the fan quite so much, but, but who knows? Um, seems trivial after the, after the end of all that to ask you to recommend a book, and you may have already give, given us your answer. Um, but do you want to either repeat it or give us a different one? It's up to you. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a different one. I, you know, I I think uh, if if you're looking to understand what collective action on this looks like, like everybody wants to do something or thinks they want to do something, I, I think a book I'm reading right now is really excellent at framing how your response can be most effective. And that it's called The Big Fix. It's by Hal Harvey and Justin Gillis. Uh, I, I spoke with Hal um, at some point during my research. Uh, and, you know, he's one of these soft-spoken, like Tony, like very, you know, sort of uh, not not prickly, but he's, he's just like a quieter guy. Uh, he's just, he's an engineer. Uh, he's not going to light anybody's world on fire. He's no Kate Morris, but he's an incredibly intelligent person in thinking about 
you know, our energy systems and uh, how we how we change them the most rapidly. And so the big fix is something if you're interested, uh, I would look at. Okay, definitely. Um, I feel nearly energized by your book. So yeah, definitely. Uh, and the last question, and my God, this may be redundant in the light of everything we've just said, but but what truly <laughs> yeah. scares you, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think obviously it's sort of if if we don't move quickly, what will happen to our uh, society as as the impacts of this grow more violent? I just think the 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 scarier element of this is not storms, heat, drought, although those are all very scary. Uh, it is how our humans and our the systems we inhabit will react especially our political systems. Um, I think there's a greater chance than, than most people realize for things to get very out of control very quickly. Mm. Uh, and, and that is why speed is so important. Um, the speed with which we tackle this issue is, is it's everything. Right. Um, and that, you know, that, it overwhelms any fear I have that the book is going to be a flop or that, uh, you know, it's, uh, people are going to hate me or whatever else it might be. It's, it's like looking at this issue from 30,000 feet. It is just, you know, we're on, we're on the verge of the unthinkable. Right. And so we have to do something. We have to do the work. And, and that is, uh, you know, sort of my key to staving off that existential dread that I'm sure you're feeling after finishing it. Yeah, I was really hoping you were going to just say spiders or the dark. Um, yeah, yeah. No, no. I, I don't mind spiders. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I watch horror. I was like, my friends got me into the, like this new French extremity thing. So, oh really? Yeah, I was watching like Inside and Martyrs. So I'm yeah. yeah horror movies uh, of of just horrific violence have not like you know phased me much lately. So yeah, well after this, I've got to go and read some like you know horror stories about ghosts and demons and i've got to try and summon, <laughs> yeah. summon the energy to care about somebody's haunted house when the yeah. sky is falling um but but listen Stephen, like I, I i wasn't i was not lying when i said this book i don't have words for it 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 it, it feels genuinely life-changing and I, I know it's a book that in in 20 years 30 years when people say what are your favorite books this will be this will be in the roster. I, I've, I've loved it and despaired of it so much. So thank you for writing it. And thank you very, very much for talking scared. No, thank you so much for saying that. I, I really appreciate you having me. Um, it's been a great conversation. Well, we've kicked off the new year with a bang. Um, what else can I say about the deluge? It's the best book I've read in decades. I mean, is that enough to convince you to buy and persevere with what's a very dense and challenging text? Um, perhaps this'll do it. I think it may be a better novel than The Stand. And you all know what it takes for me to say that. <laughs> I don't know, I'm not sure. Maybe I'll bounce back and forth on that one forever. But I, I will say that Markley certainly challenges Cy King for the apocalyptic top spot. And, and don't get me wrong, there are countless differences, because as I hope you understand, this isn't some genre-heavy Mad Max riot. It's a slow, measured, incremental journey towards a darkening of civilization. 
it's sublime in how it balances character with all this scientific and political detail and how it combines our collective societal story with the individual. Basically, I recommend it unconditionally. Well, actually, no, there is one condition. I wouldn't start reading this book casually because it's 900 pages long with quite lengthy chapters and it demands a lot of you. Read it for absolute sure, but carve out some time because 20 minutes before bed when you've fallen asleep just won't cut it, I don't think. It requires immersion, like, you know, the five days I spent not sleeping and coughing and reading it in a weird fever dream. Honestly, when I finished it, I was delighted to find that the sun was still coming up. <laughs> and I'm still thinking about it. Weeks later, the impact has not diminished. But I'm, I get it, I'm, I'm kind of banging on now. So, you know, you'll either read it or you won't. And I desperately hope you do. I do want to say a thanks to everyone who stuck with me during my brief hiatus away from the normal interview standard of the show. December's episodes got a little wiggy, but you, you seem to like them. And if anything, download numbers absolutely shot up by a few thousand. So, so that was heartening. And I'm still thinking about the options when it comes to perhaps branching out into another show with a non-genre focus, but I'll update you with that one as I think about it further. And, and if it does happen, it won't be, well, for quite a while, because I've got quite a lot booked in for the first half of this year on Talking Scared already. For now, though, if you want more from me, you can sign up for bonus episodes on patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod, because a few dollars or... A few pounds a month gets you exclusive episodes and content. And aside from that, get in touch. Always the same details. It's Talk Scared Pod on Twitter or Instagram. And it's TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com for emails. And I've had a lot of lovely correspondence over Christmas on all channels. So thanks to everyone. Especially to Tasha, who sent me a card all the way from the US... That was a really nice moment to receive that. Really appreciate it. I also want to say a special hello and thanks to Alyssa, who sent me a really nice email that kind of made my day. And I'm glad this show was able to keep you company, Alyssa, over what sounds like a pretty tough few weeks. And I hope things are improving for you and your mum considerably. Lots of love and good thoughts. Yeah, just lots of love and good thoughts generally. Let's start the year on a sort of optimistic note. <laughs> Next week, I'm swapping existential ecological terror for something a little closer to home, both in terms of genre and, well, actually being about the home. Yeah, Grady Hendrix will be taking us all through how to sell a haunted house with much puppet chat. You'll, you'll find out. It's a blast. Until then, regroup, recycle and rethink your anger at environmental protesters. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared. <laughs>